Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 13, Border Towns, Part 1. The Children of the Cloudy River. You are listening to native musicians from Baja California performing a curicuri, a sacred art form to the tribe's people of not only this northern Mexican state, but others including neighboring Sonora and Chihuahua, as well as parts of southwestern United States. The songs performed, of which we will discuss later on in the episode, were utilized in all manners of situations, from mourning to celebrations to storytelling, but always with the singer, an instrument, and a corresponding dance. This feature of native culture is just one example of the richness expressed by those tribes that came to populate along the Colorado River, including those that live along the border between California and Baja California. And for today's episode, we will be focusing on the tribe that existed where the modern capital of Baja sits today, the border town that lends its name to the valley it sits in, Mexicali. Although unofficial, the city of Mexicali itself is affectionately referred to by its inhabitants as Chicali, and it will be Chicali and its surrounding area that will be the focus of our first episode in a new series I have begun in collaboration with Pike Productions over on YouTube, focused on the many border towns that exist between Mexico and the United States. Alex himself is writing a series on the evolution of the Mexican economy, and I can't recommend it enough if you like a visual brand of Mexican history with an economic focus. So definitely go subscribe to Pike Productions, check out his video on the death of globalization as it just recently hit a million views, and I gotta take a quick moment to congratulate Alex for reaching such a massive milestone, and I look forward to watching you continue to grow. So keep it up, my mans. You're killing it. If his video on the Mexican economy isn't already up upon releasing this episode, then subscribe so you can catch it when it drops. And if the episode did already drop, then subscribe so you can catch the second part, which, if the sneak peek on the script I got is anything to go by, promises to be a highly engrossing romp through some fascinating Mexican history, which we at the Histories of Mexico podcast full-heartedly support. So go check Alex out. But enough flattery. I'm proud to announce that in partnership with the awesome video documentaries over at Pike Productions, I have written this series focused on several border cities that are slowly marching towards an inseparable bond with each other. So much so that the physical U.S.-Mexico border itself will be rendered all but symbolic as the two economies and cultures continue to swirl and mix as they have for hundreds of years. And this is all backed up by leading intellectuals in the field, such as Andrew Selly. More on him in a second. 
The first three border city pairs I have selected to focus on, as suggested by Alex himself, are going to be Mexicali and Calexico, then Tijuana and San Diego, and finally Juarez and El Paso. But I will be working on further border cities in the future, so places like Laredo and Nuevo Laredo are soon to come. Now, when talking about these collaborations with Alex, he shared with me one of his inspirations for talking about the economy of Mexico and its future, particularly the ideas he read in a great book called The Vanishing Frontier, written by the president of the Migration Policy Institute, a global nonpartisan institute that seeks to improve immigration and integration policies through fact-based research, and one of the leading thinkers in the field of U.S.-Mexico relations, Dr. Andrew Selly. The thesis of his book is summed up best by Dr. Selly himself, quote, Wall or no wall, deeply intertwined social, economic, business, cultural, and personal relationships mean the U.S.-Mexico border is more like a seam than a barrier, weaving together two economies and cultures, end quote. If you don't have time to read the book yourself, that's okay, but I highly recommend it for some fascinating stories told via various high-profile interviews Dr. Selly conducts himself and covers many of the topics Alex and I will be brushing on and delving into through our series. If you are at all interested in hearing more on this book directly from the author himself, there is a wonderful talk on the subject available on YouTube over at the Hoover Institute's Recorded Talks. And I will try to post a link to the full discussion Dr. Selly himself gives about his book in the description of this episode if you want to check it out for yourself. With Selly's book in mind, I figured I would give this topic the old histories of Mexico treatment, given that most of this area was technically part of Mexico for a time. And we can get a lovely preview of the future series on Baja California by exploring these frontier towns in their history and evolution into their current economic and cultural states. One of Selly's big points is that the Mexican and U.S. economies and societies are becoming more interdependent and are starting to face a lot of the same issues, particularly in the last few years. And as we will hopefully see throughout these following few supplementals, they are actually issues they have been sharing for centuries in a land that has existed long before a border came through and divided the desert that had stood there for millennia. So, in the following series of supplemental episodes, set to coincide with the video releases over at Pike Productions, I will be covering the history of one pair of cities at a time, starting with Mexicali, the capital of the Mexicali municipality in the Mexican state of Baja California, and Calexico, its sister city situated directly on the other side of the border, lying near the southeastern corner of California. This will also give me an opportunity to begin touching on some of the overlaps between Mexican and U.S. history, since many of these locations we will be talking about are inseparable from their counterpart found on the other side. And that's sort of Dr. Selly's point, that the two countries are only moving towards deeper and more interwoven societies. I very much agree with this analysis and would like to support it by analyzing the evolution of this interdependency before, during, and after the inception of the Spanish territories known as Alta and Baja California. So we will begin by describing the area that is the American Southwest and Mexican Northwest, its environment, its geography, its features, and dangers, in order to get an idea of the region within which we effectively may frame our discussion of the prehistoric peoples and how they came to endure and settle this corner of the world, some clinging desperately to their ancient customs all the way into the present. In the next episode, we will cover the transition from brief colonial times to the modern, by exploring a particular story concerning the development of the Imperial Valley 
and in the last of three episodes concerning Mexicali and Calexico, we will cover the modern city along with its relationship with said sister city of Calexico, or as it's said in the United States, Calexico. So lots to look forward to in the North. Along with discussing the amazing way progress has woven these two societies together, in this episode concerning the indigenous and prehistoric tribes in particular, I would like to highlight the often overlooked cost this progress typically comes at. In this case, the indigenous way of life that has survived in this harsh environment for thousands of years has nearly been wiped out in a matter of decades in order to prop up a society that, in terms of how long the natives have actually been here, have relatively just moved in. Not to get all bleeding hard on you, but the development of the Mexicali Valley, as we know, wondrous and impressive as it is, is a modern-day story of the Lorax, with the humble yet noble tribes of the desert, the many indigenous children of the river, forced to watch as their river that afforded them their existence for countless generations, like the majestic truffula trees, slowly disappear along with their way of life. But this isn't meant to be a somber episode, but rather a celebration of the tribes and their resilience, and hopefully, by recording their stories and songs, we may help maintain their culture a little bit longer. But to talk about Mexicali and the native tribes that inhabited the valley before modernity moved in, we must first talk about the state it served as the capital for, Baja California. And before we talk about the history of Baja, like any discussion about the history of human habitation within a region, we must talk about a river, as it winds its way through a mostly inhospitable land on its way to the sea. But before we talk about said river, we have to understand the characteristics of the inhospitable land it provides life and nourishment for. In this case, the river in question is the Colorado River, or the Rio Colorado, as it carves through one of the hottest ecosystems on the planet which is the actual starting point of our discussions, the inhospitable region that is the Sonoran Desert. Recognized as the 14th largest desert by area, it is one of four major deserts identified on the North American continent, although arguments are made that some others should be counted as their own thing, such as the desert on the peninsula of Baja California. But that's a whole separate discussion. Uh, for our purposes, we're sticking with four. East of the Sonora, in the neighboring Mexican state of Chihuahua, we find the aptly named Chihuahua Desert, while north of the Sonora we can find the Mojave, named after the tribe that inhabited its plains, and comprises of southeastern California and southwestern Nevada, including Las Vegas and the epically named Death Valley. Slightly northeast of the Mojave Desert, we see the only cold desert in North America, where snow is the most common form of precipitation the Great Basin Desert, which makes up the majority of Nevada and juts into parts of surrounding California, Oregon, Wyoming, and Idaho. Out of these four North American deserts, the Sonoran stands apart as both the wettest at a whopping two periods of rainfall a year, along with the warmest of the continent, regularly reaching blistering temperatures of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius, yielding uncharacteristically warm winters across the ecosystem. Perhaps because of this unique climate, the Sonora supports the most biodiversity of any desert in the world, according to Wikipedia. With more than 2,000 native plants, including dozens of unique cacti species, such as the magnificent saguaro, or Carneguia gigantea, and the otherworldly organ pipe cactus, Stenocereus thurberi, 
Two simply spectacular specimens that provide a vital habitat for some truly iconic Mexican critters, such as the bobcat, the mule deer, the coyote, the bighorn sheep, the western diamondback rattlesnake, the greater roadrunner, the burrowing owl, quails and hawks, the gila monster, the antelope jackrabbit, and this is perhaps the only desert where you can find the lightest and therefore cutest owl in the world, the elf owl, who makes its home among the majestic cacti of the Sonora. This region also boasts a host of precious stones and minerals that were prized and utilized mostly for their aesthetic qualities by the pre-Hispanic natives. Minerals such as graphite, lime, gypsum, quartz, and sulfur, all lying beneath the cracked earth of the Sonoran Desert. This unique desert is further divided into a few subregions, such as the Yuma Desert, found just east of the north to south section of the Colorado River in southwest Arizona. But most importantly for our story today, the subregion called the Colorado Desert, the portion of the Sonora that straddles the border between southeastern California and northwestern Baja California, as well as parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and the northwestern portion of the Mexican state of Sonora. Not to make things any more confusing, but we will also be concerned with the Yuha Desert, a subsection which covers the Imperial Valley that is found directly north across the border from the Mexicali Valley. Despite academia attributing two distinct names to either side of this invisible border, the Colorado River, like the Sonoran Desert, has little regard for human conventions and charges past the scorched border to its final destination in the Gulf of California, the body of water pinched between the Baja Peninsula and the state of Sonora, once known as the Bay of Cortez or the Vermilion Sea. Now that we got an idea of the landscape being scythed through, let's follow the equally interesting river engaging in the very scything and carving of these arid plains through the cycle of erosion a process which both helps sustain the abundance of life that clings to this thirsty section of the Colorado Desert known as the Lower Colorado River Basin, while at the same time endangering its very existence. So let's meet our main protagonist when talking about the Mexicali Valley's development into one of the most fertile agricultural production zones in Mexico, our complex anti-hero, the Colorado River. Counted as the fourth largest river in the United States, its true importance is realized by the region through which it flows. The source of this river lies high in the Rocky Mountain Range, which is located within the heart of the state of Colorado and the southeast of the state of Wyoming. During the rainy winter season, thousands of cubic gallons of water are dumped in the form of rainfall all along the mountain range. Some of it immediately runs downstream to collect into the Colorado River and its many tributaries while some of it gathers as snowfall, creating the magnificent snowy peaks the state of Colorado is so well known for. Come spring, however, whatever rainfall froze into snow now begins to melt and does what its winter counterpart does, flowing via gravity towards the southwest and often causing severe flooding downriver as multiple snowmelt streams and tributaries all collect at the same time. These floods are well-documented features of the river, and most pre-modern cultures of the Sonoran Desert would utilize their floodwaters to engage in their agricultural activities, and thus came to heavily rely on and revere the mighty river as it descends on uncertain and broken terrain, inexorably marching towards the Gulf of California. 
In total, it makes a journey of nearly 2,700 kilometers, or about 1,677 miles, from the Rockies all the way to the Gulf. And for about 30 kilometers, or 18 miles of that course, the Colorado River delineates the international limit between Arizona and Baja California. Then, once in Mexico, it continues its last leg of the trip for another 144 kilometers, or 89 miles, until its waters finally rest in the Gulf of California. Because of the arid landscape it waters, the Colorado has been called the most important natural resource of the American Southwest, and it has remained integral to the development of life and civilization in this scalding environment. Much like the Nile to which it is often compared, the lower section of the Colorado runs through a region which, climactically, ranks among the hottest deserts in the world. Despite being a well-saturated floodplain today, the Mexicali Valley was extremely dry, pretty much everywhere except along the river's edge, and received very little water in the form of rain, with extremely long and hot summers mixed with mild to warm winters, which coincided with the typical climate of the Sonoran. This likewise extends to the amount of rain it received, a total of 70.9 millimeters or 2.79 inches of rainfall annually, over an average of 16 precipitation days total. 16, ladies and gentlemen, bone dry. And remember, this is the wettest desert with two rain seasons. Quite brutal. This entire region, from Sonora to Nevada, has been subject to some of the hottest temperatures recorded on Earth in recent history. Death Valley, which is located in the northern Mojave Desert, just west of Las Vegas, is officially the lowest point in North America, sunken to a nearly subterranean 282 feet or 86 meters below sea level. It is also believed to be the hottest place on Earth during the summer. As you head south, the northern Mojave turns into the southern Mojave, which then becomes the Colorado Desert, the subregion of the much larger Sonoran Desert, all essentially the same stretch of harsh, dry land that has produced some of the hottest days in human history. Mexicali itself has broken into these record books when, on the 28th of July, 1995, the area recorded a blistering temperature of 52 degrees Celsius, or 125.6 degrees Fahrenheit, which clocks in as one of the highest official temperature readings to have ever been recorded in Mexico. The current title holder for hottest temperature recorded in the world is a 1913 reading taken at the Greenland Ranch in Death Valley, California clocking at a sweltering 56.7 degrees Celsius, or 134 degrees Fahrenheit. Yet even hotter still, there has recently been a claim that, if officially confirmed, would smash this previous record. The reading in question was found in the city of San Luis, in the north of the state of Sonora, where meteorologists going through state archives discovered a solitary note with a temperature reading of 58.5 degrees Celsius, or 137.3 degrees Fahrenheit, scratched on it. It was unclear who made the note, or even if it was an official reading, but regardless of the validity, I think we can safely designate this chunk of the Americas as one of the hottest places in the entire world. And yet, despite this heat, the Colorado River has allowed the Mexicali Valley to become the most fertile valley in all of Mexico while its northern neighbor of the Imperial Valley is no slouch in the agricultural production game either, with both valleys growing over 50 diverse crops, including onions, alfalfa, asparagus, squash, and cotton, to name a few, 
all watered by the largest irrigation district in Mexico. This drastic transformation of the land was all made possible by a vast system of aquifers and canals that flowed through the valley, all synchronized to a series of dams along the upper portions of the Colorado, which does cut into the amount of water Mexicali receives annually. However, the issue was relatively addressed through a water treaty signed in 1944 that guaranteed the Mexican state capital 1.5 million acre-feet, or 1.9 cubic kilometers of water, to be delivered from the river a year. So these matters have been somewhat addressed in recent decades, but just scratch the surface on the dozens of ways these two sides of the border are intimately linked. But what does the agriculturally productive lower portion of the Colorado look like? All the areas that are fed by the waters of the Colorado River as it travels towards the Gulf is known as the Colorado River Basin. And this basin is a massive zone of over a half million square kilometers, comprising parts of Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, nearly all of Arizona, small chunks of Nevada, California, and nearly 5,000 square kilometers of Mexico. This basin is naturally divided between an upper and lower section, with the upper section existing among the mesas that dominate the Colorado desert, sitting at around 1.5 to 2,500 meters in altitude. And it is through these mesas that the Colorado carved the world-famous Grand Canyon, among other less famous canyons and valleys. These smaller valleys are typically found dry, except for when the Colorado swells with the rainwaters in the winter and then the snow melts in the spring, all coming down from the peaks of the Rockies. Both hydrological events cause a considerable volume of water to flow unpredictably and suddenly, down the river's course, causing untold chaos and destruction to anyone caught unprepared or in the way. Leaving this upper region and traveling downriver to the southwest, we get to the lower section of the river, where the climate gets considerably drier, and the elevation has rapidly gone from several thousand feet high to barely a few meters above sea level. Here, the many tributaries and offshoots from the Colorado are dry nearly year-round, but can swell again with the water coming down from the upper portions during years of particularly heavy snowfall, with the Gila River being the largest and most unpredictable of the southern tributaries, cutting across Arizona and New Mexico before joining up with the Colorado near the town of Yuma at the Arizona-Baja border. Here, the Colorado opted long ago to flow around the southern part of a geological rock mass known as Pilot Knob, thus forming the present-day flow the river takes to this day, as it heads to the Gulf. And it is at this point of Pilot Knob that the lower section of the Colorado River has been increasingly utilized by the two states to water the Imperial and Mexicali Valleys, as per the original agreement between the American and Mexican developers of the early 1900s. This has turned them into some of the most productive lands in the Americas, thanks in no small part to human ingenuity and development. The Colorado River Delta is defined as the total area once covered by the annual sediment deposits of the flooded river as the Colorado meets the upper Gulf of California. Although these floods have been brought under control and all but eliminated ever since the development of the dam and canal systems, they still represent the areas which lay at the lowest points and filled up with the seasonal overflow of the Colorado, flooding the area with water that was rich in sediments and nutrients providing huge agricultural benefits for the pre-Hispanic tribes and cultures that endured what was a hot, desolate desert for the rest of the year. 
Thus, the tribes that existed before the Spanish discovered the territories they would name Las Californias would inhabit these floodplains of the Colorado River Delta, which is defined by the following natural features. The Coachella Valley in the north, the Salton Basin, the Imperial Valley, and the regions that make up the Mexicali Valley, which is actually comprised of three separate features. The Laguna Salada Basin, the Delta Plains, which are really more like sandy dunes, and the Sierra de los Cucapá, which is a mountain range that follows along towards the Bay of California. The entire delta has been described as forming a capital T laying on its side, with the top pointing towards the Pacific Ocean, while the base can be found in the southeastern tip of California at the location we already encountered called Pilot Knob. This is the place where the Colorado River bends to the southwest and heads to the Gulf, a short ways away from Yuma, Arizona, and Los Algodones, Baja California. Pilot Knob is actually an inactive volcano, and from the inactive Pilot Knob, you can draw our sideways T-shaped delta towards the west to arrive smack in the middle of our T, right where all the branches connect. That, ladies and gentlemen, is where Mexicali sits. Surrounding the city and in the heart of the delta, we can find two geological features that are referenced in local mythology, El Sierro Prieto and El Centinela. So the base of this T is at the inactive volcano called Pilot Knob, while the center of our T lies to the west where the city of Mexicali, the Sierra Prieto, and the lonely Centinela all lie. Well, now let's consider the long arms of our T that extend to either side, in this case, north to south, for about 300 kilometers, or 186 miles. We can visualize the right arm as starting in the north at the Valle de Conchita, or Valley of the Little Shell, a name given due to the many fossilized shells found within this valley. But this name would be mistranslated when English speakers moved in, and it is now known as the Coachella Valley. South of this valley, we find the Salton Sea and Imperial Valley on the American side, while on the Mexican side, the left arm of RT stretches past the Laguna Salada, or Salty Lagoon, and past the Sierra Cucapá until it reaches the northern shores of the Gulf of California. Ultimately, it would be agricultural speculation on either side of the border along these two arms of the Colorado River Delta that encouraged the early economic investments in the middle and late 1800s that ultimately led to the agricultural development and modernization of the two valleys. But now it would be the foreign developers who benefited most from this Colorado Delta floodplain rather than the locals who had come to farm the actual flooded plains themselves for hundreds of years. The northern state of Baja California was named literally as Lower California to distinguish it from the Spanish territory of Alto California, or Upper California. Since it was the first to become a state, Upper California got to keep just California, while Baja California, or Lower California, would itself be further divided into two states when it entered the Mexican Union, with the top half retaining the name of simply Baja California, and the southern half joining several years later as Baja California Sur, or Southern Lower California, just to keep everything nice and concise. We will cover more of this history in the series on the Bajas, as today we will try to keep our focus on the border region where future Mexicali would be born. But if you don't already know this show, then fair warning, as I reserve full rights to meander into any digressions I see fit, but I promise to do my best to keep things interesting and relevant. 
So with that being said, let's talk about the mythological origins of the two most important geological features of the Mexicali Valley, starting with El Cerro Prieto. The geological feature found to the south along the same fault line that created the inactive volcano of Pilot Knob is therefore itself another inactive volcano, known as El Cerro Prieto, or Black Butte, or Black Hill in English. It lies south of Mexicali and has been woven into local Cucapá and native legend as a site of evil and darkness, hence the black part of the name. Inocencia González Sainz, a member of the El Mayor Cucapá Indian community in northern Sonora, was interviewed on March 13, 2003, during which the following story was written down that I will now do my best to paraphrase from the original Spanish. According to Inocencia and the Cucapá people, the ancient Cucapá Indians once had an evil sorceress, or bruja, as a neighbor, who lived in a cave to the south, exactly on the spot where El Cerro Prieto now stands. It is said that this woman was a pretty terrible neighbor, and once a day would lure unsuspecting Cucapá villagers to her lair via her black magic. And as they approached the entrance to her cave, the bruja would stand up and proclaim, Cornipá! Cornipá! You're here, you're here. Then she would begin to joyfully dance and sing. A sikiwa, a jokiwa, slowly inching closer to her suddenly immobilized and panicked victim. As she got close enough, she would stop uttering her enchanting spell. A sikiwa, a jokiwa, and suddenly kill her poor victim cutting off all of their hair to be hung outside of her wicked lair as some sort of sick trophy to her vile deeds. Eventually, it is said that nearly all the Cucapá had been killed, except for one family made up of a mother, a father, a son, and a daughter. The girl, it was said, had beautiful, long, black hair, recognizable to all because of its flowing beauty and length. One day, while she was out gathering materials for the family among the desert plants and cacti, the daughter suddenly disappeared. Desperately, her brother set out to look for her in the wilderness. Bringing his bow and arrow in case he was set upon by any dangers of the desert, he searched across the sand dunes to the north and along the delta plains in the west, but saw no sign of his missing daughter or her beautiful long hair. Then, as he thought to search for her in the south near the bay, he passed in front of the Bruja's cave, and his concern evaporated as it turned instead to abject horror, as he recognized his sister's long and beautiful black hair, blowing mournfully in the wind outside of the jet-black dwelling. I'll kill her this very moment, the enraged boy roared, and thinking fast, he stashed his bow and arrow by the entrance of the cave and began walking into the inky blackness and towards the eerie sound of somebody sitting in the darkness within. As the boy approached closer and closer, the sorceress finally noticed him and began dancing and twirling and singing towards him. Hey, Sikiwa! Hey, Jokiwa! Closer she approached. Hey, Sikiwa! Hey, Jokiwa! Her face revealed in the sun as she approached the boy standing still by the entrance. Hey, Sikiwa! Hey, Jokiwa! This time, however, the brave boy had steeled his mind against the enrapturing song, and he remained perfectly still, fainting immobility. As he awaited the villainous sorceress to get close enough, dancing and singing her haunting spell, Hey, Sikiwa, hey, Jokiwa, 
She spun and spun, joyfully drawing closer, ready for another meal or spell or whatever evil thing it was she did with her victims, her song pouring into his mind, Eh, sikiwa, eh, jokiwa. But suddenly, when she had gotten close enough, and while her back was turned, performing one of her many twirls, his love for his sister and rage for her loss managed to tear him away from her wicked words towards the entrance and his deadly bow. Before the surprised old woman could cast another spell on him and stop what he was doing, he retrieved his weapon and fatally stuck her with his arrow. Hey, Sikiwa, hey, Jokiwa! Wounded and eyes wide with surprise, the woman keeled over to the ground and began to shudder and tremble. The boy had no time to celebrate his victory as the very earth itself began to rumble and shake violently. Finally, overcome with fear, the boy left the witch's body twitching on the ground and fled from the cave, grabbing his sister's hair from the entrance, and ran to gather his parents. Together they all returned with kindling and fire to burn the evil sorceress's body, and there it burned for three whole days in the cave, all while the ground continued to rumble, increasing in intensity every day. On the third and most violent day, the family saw an acrid black plume of smoke rising from the body, and a large owl, a pretty universal Native American symbol for evil or witchcraft, flying from among the ashes. Then the Cucapa tribe say the family witnessed the Cerro Prieto growing directly from out of this ash, and only when the mountain finally stopped rising did the shaking of the earth finally stop. So what to make of this fantastical tale? Well, while I did make a few creative flourishes to the story in order to make it a bit more engrossing, ultimately, I think what we have here on our hands when we strip away the more fantastical elements is a good old-fashioned explanatory myth for the volcanic eruption that may or may not have created part of the Sierra Prieto, an event the ancient Paleolithic descendants of the Cucapá might have possibly lived through and passed down through their oral traditions. Now, this would be an incredible feat if true, as it's estimated the volcanic dome that is the Cerro Prieto was formed between 100,000 and 10,000 years ago, suggesting, very tentatively, that the Cucapa ancestors have been around since at least 10,000 years ago. But of course, more research on that must be conducted before we make any certain conclusions. The current Cerro Prieto, might, which might have loomed large in the Cucapa's myth, is actually relatively small as far as volcanoes go, and it sits along the same fault line that created Pilot Knob a few miles away. It is also referred to as Wenai in the local Kukapa language, and it is currently utilized as a geothermal plant. During the time of the Spanish conquest, there was said to have existed at this location a so-called lagoon of the volcano, and represented a sort of oasis rest stop for travelers passing through the Sonoran Desert on their way to the Pacific, hoping to survive the harsh environment. Today, however, the nearby area that would have served as this oasis is now flooded by the wastewater from the geothermal plant nearby. There is also no official word on how many owls do or do not live in or around the inactive volcano, or if the haunting sounds of a sorceress singing across the dunes has been heard since the emergence of this black hill, the Cerro Prieto. But the volcano was just one of two important geological features to define the center of the Colorado River Delta. The second super important geological feature that exists just west of the city limits is the Cerro del Centinela, 
also known as El Sentinela, which translates to the Sentinel in English. In the U.S., however, this mountain is known as Mount Signal, but originally called Huexipa by the local indigenous language of the Kumeyaay, a tribe related to the Kukapa we will speak of today, but located further to the west in the area that would one day become San Diego, hence why the Kumeyaay are also known as the Digueño people. More on them on the episodes concerning San Diego and Tijuana. This peak of Huexipa, El Sentinela, or Mount Signal, has an impressive profile from any angle it is viewed from and is the solitary northeasternmost peak of the Sierra Cucapá, or the Cucapá mountain range. While the rest of the Sierra Cucapá has its peaks south of the city of Mexicali and along the western edge of the Laguna Salada, Mount Signal has its northern slope bordering the U.S. and proudly stands at about 2,165 feet in the air, or about 781 meters high. El Sentinela is recorded as being used by both native and pioneer explorers to the region to help guide them through the desert. And it goes without saying that the peak became a prominent feature of the landscape to all the people who made this valley their home, visible from nearly any location. And thus, much like Mount Fuji in Japan, it has become a regional icon for the residents who live in its shadow and has been immortalized in countless songs as well as flags and crests, with the solitary mountain featured on the Mexicali City crest as well as on the flag of the Imperial County of California, with each side representing the iconic natural formation from their own perspective. Like the Cerro Prieto, however, El Sentinela has its own origin myth, this time relating to the Spanish who arrived and built the first fort in the Mexicali Valley. As the legend goes, these Spanish soldiers would patrol the dunes around the fort and occasionally caught glimpses of a strange and beautiful woman with pale white skin and a mysterious but elegant demeanor. However, as soon as she spotted the soldiers, she expertly fled to her hut, hiding among the many cacti and brushes of cachanilla growing along the sandy dunes surrounding the fort. The elusive woman managed to hide herself well, but the Spanish began to inquire about her to the locals, who admitted knowing little about the mysterious figure, except that she was rumored to be the daughter of a great cacique and his foreign captive, and that her name was Amaike. The highly superstitious locals had come to show great respect for Amaike, who they considered more divine than human, and therefore found something almost mystical in the mysterious, almost fairy-like creature that seldom strayed from its hut and hid among the rocks and foliage whenever spotted. It is said that among the native Indians of the village, there existed a very strong, large, and particularly stubborn man who had fallen deeply and hopelessly in love with the mysterious Amaike. He neglected his fields and neglected his hunt, but instead would spend hours sitting perfectly still atop a rocky hill, still so as not to frighten his beloved quarry. And from the first rays of the sun in the morning until the dying rays set in the coming darkness of the evening, he would wait patiently and stubbornly, hoping to catch a glimpse of his beautiful apparition. When she finally revealed herself, the man was set to gaze at her like a goddess, remaining perfectly and stubbornly still. After several days of sitting like this, he finally built up the courage to get up and meet her. But of course, the moment she noticed him, she ran away, as all the other times. Yet little by little, through his persistence, dedication, and of course, stubbornness, 
he began winning Amike's confidence, and love began to blossom as the two became engrossed with the illusion of forming a future life and family together. I use the word illusion because, as our protagonists are falling in love and preparing for a happily ever after, the evil villains of our story make their third act return, and that's when you realize this legend is actually a tragedy. For you see, the Spanish soldiers of the fort had, at first, been rather entertained with the locals' little legend of the elusive yet beautiful Amaike. Two soldiers in particular, perhaps rather deep in their cups, decided to prove to their friends in the tavern and the locals of the village the might of the Spanish Empire and military, and perhaps demonstrate their believed superiority of Catholicism over local pagan beliefs. They were committed to capturing and bringing back this mysterious Amaike, and the two nefarious men were proficient hunters themselves, who somehow managed to track Amaike back to her home, and despite her courageous defense, she was no match for the two trained killers, who bound her in ropes and brought her back to the fort. There she was met by jeering, laughing soldiers who had nothing but ill designs for the defenseless Amaike. Ever a lover of freedom, and fully aware of what a humiliating future might be in store for her, Amaike waited until her captors were distracted by their triumphant compatriots' return, and at serious cost to her own wrists, managed to break free of her restraints and ran for her freedom. In the inky, dark blanket of night, all that could be heard from the walls by the lone guard on duty was a splash of water coming from the deep moat surrounding the fort. Not realizing what the sound was, the guard never thought to raise the alarm, and it wasn't until Amaike's room was checked hours later that her escape was finally noticed. By then, the soldiers would be far too late. The guard came forward and was questioned, but it became clear to the men that, from the silence and stillness coming from the water after the initial splash, that the mysterious Amaike had likely drowned in an attempt to swim out of the moat, as a result of the damage her hand sustained attempting to break free from her chains. Mysterious to the end, however, her body never surfaced, and despite searching the moat, the image of Amaike was never seen by soldier or villager alike. Her mysterious memory soon faded from the minds of everyone, and her existence was eventually attributed only to a distant legend. Yet, on top of a rocky hill to the west, for days and days on end, a particularly large, strong, and stubborn Indian man never stopped thinking about his beloved Amaike, as he still held on firmly to her heart. And so he sat still and steadfast atop his rocky hill, tragically stubborn according to the legends in his commitment to his love, yet patiently waiting to perhaps catch just another glimpse of his lost Maike. His figure became commonplace atop this hill, and the locals could reliably look up and see him sitting there, ever vigilant and ever still. His stubbornness kept him there like a rock, defiant to the winds, rains, animals, and intruders. Nothing disturbed his patient gaze, and while no one is sure exactly when it happened, one day the villagers looked up and said they saw that he had transformed by his unrequited love, commitment, and stubbornness into literal stone, finally granted eternal stillness. And there it is said he remains to this very day, at the peak of the lone mountain of the Sierra Cucapá, like a stoic watchman of the region, sitting firm, arrogant, and stubborn, always staring in calm yet strange contemplation to the horizon, hoping for the return of what was lost. This is what became the enormous mass rightly named La Sentinela, the Sentinel. 
And that's how this massive Mount Fuji-esque mountain that holds a cultural significance to both sides of the border here in the American Southwest came to be, according to the local Kukapa people, who have been central figures in both of these stories. And will pop up again later on in the episode when we flush them out a bit more, as they were the prehistoric protagonists of this Mexicali Valley region. Hopefully, these stories convey a bit more of the mystery and reverence shown to these natural features that stood long before antiquity to inspire and shape the cultures that lived before any foreigners arrived to colonize the region. But these geological features the pre-Hispanic natives worshipped and definitely still respect are not the only features they honored, for it would be the river that they truly worshipped and relied on for their livelihoods. This river, the Colorado River, has a fun little historical journey of its own regarding its name. The word Colorado in Spanish can refer to something being drawn or colored in, but it's mostly understood to refer to something colored red. Color rojo, Colorado. You get the idea. But this is just the last in a long line of names the river has been given. We aren't sure what the prehistoric inhabitants called this river, but the first Spanish explorers to arrive in the area called it the Rio del Tizon, which translates to the River of Embers, or the Firebrand River. Apparently, the name came from the natives' practice of using the waters of the Colorado to warm themselves on cold mornings, hence the Rio del Tizon. After this initial name, however, the Colorado has gone by a myriad of other names, including Rio Colorado de los Mártires, El Rio de Cosminas de Rafael, the Green River, the Grand River, the Rio de Buen Guía, and even the Sidkiri River, as some of the fur trappers that came through the area like to call it. Thankfully, none of these names stuck, although the Sidkiri River would have been an amazing one to be left with, but by the time American adventurer John Wesley Powell fully explored, navigated, and mapped out the Grand Canyon in 1869, Colorado would be the accepted name of this river. All of this culminating in 1921, when a Colorado state senator formally petitioned to the federal government to change the name of the Grand River that flowed through his state into the Colorado, leaving the other names to collect historical dust and wait around for guys in a living room with a laptop to rediscover and record them into a historical podcast, the dream of any forgotten name. While on the subject of things nearly lost to history, this area of the southwestern United States and northwestern Mexico is riddled with archaeological zones depicting early human existence as far back as 11,000 years ago, with some of the most interesting things they left behind being the many cave paintings found all across the mountainous caves dotting the western coast of the Gulf of California, specifically in the Sierra de Guadalupe, where the biggest concentrations of paintings can be found within the Baja Peninsula. Even more can be enjoyed throughout the north of the state at sites such as El Vallecito, which is much more accessible to American tourists, all within a few hours' journey from San Diego. Thanks to the Baja Peninsula's dry climate, all these fantastic pieces of prehistoric artwork have managed to survive into modern day, allowing them to stand as a sort of ancient museum, displaying not only the survival but endurance of humanity in the face of the harsh conditions the Sonoran Desert offered its children. The southern section of the Colorado River, whose watershed expands across present-day Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, Utah, and the Mexican states of Baja California and Sonora, was the home to dozens of indigenous tribes who likely arrived during the many migrations covered in Episode 2, Flint and Maze. 
how these people populated this region is still shrouded by the historical fog. But eventually, people groups did indeed come to populate the American Mid and Southwest. And it would be these tribes and their descendants that eventually would rely on the Colorado for their survival. The Spanish collectively named this incredibly diverse and culturally rich collection of people they found living throughout the American Southwest, the Pueblo people, or the Puebloans, naming them after the many permanent stone and mud buildings with thatched roofs they found them living in, which means the Spanish unwittingly picked both the laziest name, yet quite possibly the best, since in English, the Pueblo people can be translated as the town people or the village people. Go west, indeed. Modern research now recognizes these people as, you know, diverse and unique groups, and have even come to identify three originator groups. The Mogollon, who were discovered near the Mogollon Mountains in New Mexico. The O'Okam, who dominated the Phoenix and Tucson basins of Arizona. And the Anasazi people, who lived primarily in the Four Corners region the place where the corners of four U.S. states, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, all meet in one point. And while to those outside of the states, this area sounds like it did to me, like a great place to visit, unfortunately, I hesitate recommending visiting the Four Corners to very many people unless you are already driving through that section of the United States, since according to many reliable sources and accounts, it's not only a fairly far drive from any major city, at least four to five hours from Denver, for example. But sadly, there's not much else to do once you get there besides take pictures and take in the long, lonely stretches of empty desert. Something you do want to add to your itinerary if visiting is still on the menu would be the many sites left behind by the ancestral Puebloans, such as Mesa Verde in Colorado, where the people certainly lived in Pueblos, although the word does not manage to capture and describe the architectural marvels that are some of these ancient dwellings of the desert-enduring cultures. The structures have been literally carved into the many sandstone canyons, mesas, and buttes they lived in, and magnificently displayed the propensity of humanity to bend the natural state of the world to its own imagination. These many Puebloan people are thought to be among the first to figure out how to build their cities and craft their lives among the harsh realities of the deserts, and their numbers once stretched across the flow of the Colorado River and into many parts of Mexico, long before national borders of any kind existed. By the time the Spanish arrived to meet the tribes along the lower Colorado, however, they were first met by a declining and worn-out people, barely clinging to the hot, arid landscape long since pushed out of their ancestral homes by the current big fish in town, the Diné people, better known as the Navajo or the Navajo. Archaeologists believe some ancient ancestors of the Navajo and their linguistic cousins, the Apache, invaded this area around 1400 AD, and after forcibly establishing their rule, certainly did push many of the original Puebloan groups out but also mingled with some of these groups allowed to live within their society, no doubt learning to survive in the arid desert landscape through many of their own ancient knowledge and practices. Ultimately, the Navajo proved too strong of competition for the already limited resources of the desert, and in the best case scenarios, this led to a blending of the tribes, which is what some researchers believe may have happened to create the Mogollon of New Mexico, who became the modern Hopi and Zuni people, residing primarily in those states. 
In the worst of cases, these peoples just completely disappeared or were assimilated right out of existence, as might have occurred with the Asanazi. Although the vanishing Asanazi might have also done what the Hohokam people of Arizona did, which is move south towards Mexico and away from the invading Dine. It is unclear when these tribes began all this migration, as the archaeological record merely gives us glimpses of how the resettlement went about, but nothing in the way of day-to-day -day movements, motivations, or attitudes toward any of this migrational buzz of activity. But evidence of settlements and irrigation canals in the river valleys of southern Arizona and northern Sonora indicate to researchers that such groups have existed here since as far back as 2100 BCE. The Hohokam, meanwhile, displayed signs of settlement sometimes around CE 500 to CE 1450, right around the time of the Mayan Classical Age. And it is here that the Hohokam are believed to have split into even more groups of new tribes, now known as the O'odam branch of their descendants. In fact, the name O'okam is believed to be a derivative of the O'odam word Huhugam, which translates literally as those who have gone before or the ancestors. The O'odam are better known today by their modern name of the Pima, and they would slowly spread out across the Sonoran and Chihuahuan deserts, ever southwards and away from their bitter enemy, the Navajo, who would continue raiding into Mexico and Pima land all the way into the 17th and 18th centuries, which is when the Spanish finally turned to this corner of their empire and officially began to colonize them all. The Spanish initially named the territory between Sonora and Arizona the Pimeria Alta, translated directly as the Upper Pima Land, or Land of the Upper Pima. The ancient boundaries of this territorial designations were never officially recorded, but are recognized, according to the Tumacacori National Historical Park in Arizona, as, quote, bounded on the north by the Gila River, on the south by the Altar River Valley, and on the west by the Colorado River and the Gulf of California, and to the west by the San Pedro River Valley, end quote. The reason there was an upper and lower Pima land was to help the Spanish administrators distinguish between the upper and lower Pima dialects. And this points directly to what the original O'okam and related groups did as soon as they arrived into Mexico fleeing the deadly Navajo where the name of the game of survival became diversify, diversify, diversify. And diversify they did. In their article, New Mexico and the Pimeria Alta, the Colonial Period in the American Southwest, John G. Douglas and William M. Graves rattle off the different tribes encountered by the Spanish during their colonization of northern Mexico. And in between each name provided, I'll be interrupting to give a translation as some of the names used are a bit outdated. Quote, Native groups were quite diverse in the Pimeria Alta and contrast significantly in settlement patterns to indigenous groups in the New Mexico colony. When Kino, that's Father Kino, a Spanish missionary attempting to convert the natives during this time, when Kino first passed through the Pimeria Alta, the area was inhabited by speakers of the Piman language, which is a Udo Aztecan language. Kino referred to many of the various groups as Pima a term derived from the Piman word Pimahuaitu, meaning nothing. Groups inhabiting the Pimeria Alta included the Papagos. It should be noted that this term was originally used by the Pima tribes as a derogatory name for the people known as the Tohoono O'odam, a name which translates directly to desert people. The Papagos, Pimas, 
Subaipuris, the Guileños, also known as the Aquimel o Odam, or the River Pima. Sobas and Areneños, possibly the Haised o Odam, also known as the Sand Dune Pima, or just the Sand Pima. And the human-speaking Coco Maricopas and Opas. The Maricopas people are also known as the Piposh. Neighboring groups of the region's periphery included Jocomes, Apaches, Yumas, Quiquimas, Hiliquamai, Cocopas, Eris, Nebomes, Eudeves, and Opatas. Spaniards in general, however, tended to combine these numerous groups into larger subgroups, likely due to the mixing of populations brought about through Spanish and missionary influences. End quote. The O'odam and their Pima offshoots will come back up in the Sonoran episodes as they are mostly located there. But I bring them up now because A, they and their contemporaries are fascinating, but also because B, their story represents how the Patayan people likely came to inhabit the Mexicali Valley. Which of course begs the question, who are the Patayan? Well, like the Ho'okam, they are considered a division of people by archaeologists, meaning they might not have been one unified tribe, but rather by tracing their languages along with the artifacts they leave behind, particularly their pottery, we can organize them into cultural branches such as the ancient Puebloan, the Mogollon, and the Hohokam, along with the people we will now be discussing next, the Patayan. All of these tribes engaged in semi-nomadic and farming subsistence, while populating along the many rivers that covered the Colorado Plateau, with activity attributed to the Patayan detected mostly between 700 AD to 1550 AD in the parts of modern-day Arizona and northern Baja. We don't know a whole lot about the ancient Patayan, but we do know that they lived much like their surrounding neighbors, such as the people of the Ookam cultural division to the east with whom the Patayan shared much in common. These similarities were not limited to just the survival practices that were vital to life in the desert, but they also displayed similarities in their artwork, mainly in the pottery that has been recovered from their many geographical zones of activity and can be seen in their modern styles and methods of production. A third thing these separate cultural divisions faced equally were the external pressures that resulted in migrations from their original points of origin further to the north to be pushed south, likely by the arrival of the Dine, the Navajo. And soon the Patayan, like the Ookam, found themselves pushed south along their sacred Colorado River and into the areas of modern-day SoCal and Baja California. And most importantly, the lower portion of the Colorado River that would eventually come to be known as the Mexicali Valley. The Patayan, like nearly all of these river and desert tribes, were skilled warriors, accomplished corn farmers, and active traders who often kept on the road and did not seem to establish very many structures or accumulate many possessions, leaving precious little behind for archaeologists to go off of. The most they would leave behind for researchers to study would be some interesting shallow pit structures resembling rocky longhouses along the surface made up of a series of what are believed to be rooms that functioned as either storage or ceremonial purposes, as well as the main pottery artifacts that have greatly assisted archaeologists in piecing together the long story and migratory patterns of these people groups. While we may never know the full story, we do know that after moving or being pushed away from their point of origin somewhere near the Grand Canyon, the Patayan kept up their trade networks with both the Pima of Arizona and Sonora as well as the Californian Pacific Coast tribes that began springing up near modern-day San Diego, 
the aforementioned Digüeño people, originally called the Kumeyay. And here, the Petayan cultures would likely serve as a waypoint through the hostile desolate desert as the trade kept flowing between the desperate desert groups. Much like the Ookam, the word Patayan comes from one of the descended members of said cultural group, and interestingly enough, the translations are also quite similar. In the Oodam language, it is said that Ookam means those who have gone before, or the ancestors, while in the native Quechan language, spoken primarily in southwestern Arizona, Patayan is translated as the old people, or the ancestral ones. And the similarity is even found linguistically in the structure of the words, both ending in the am or an suffixes. As these patayan, or old ones, roamed the southern plains of the Colorado Delta and settled all the way towards the western coast, they intermingled with the many Mexican tribes already clinging to life along the Bay of California's coast, and the patayan people would do as the Ookam did in Sonora, and not only flourish in the highly fertile and seasonal floodplain, but continued to spread south, along both coasts of the Gulf, all the way to the tip of Baja California Sur, where the modern-day city of Cabo San Lucas and its capital, La Paz, both rest. Likewise, these migrations went down through Sonora to places such as El Mayoral, the community where Inocencia, the teller of our Sierra Prieto myth, lives. Like the Ookam, the Patayan Cultural Division too would diversify into a myriad of people groups and tribes all loosely unified under the Yumano Cochini language group designation. These are mostly recognized as the tribes of Baja California that very much still exist to this day, such as the Quilua, the Paipai, the Kumeai, the Cochimi, the Guachimi, and the previously mentioned Kukapa and Quechan all of them now collectively recognized as the seven tribes of the Yumano Cochini. These various tribal offshoots would diversify according to the area they occupied and the methods of survival the environment forced them to specialize in, just like the Ookam. For example, the Cochimi came to dominate most of the Baja Peninsula, the center of which is mostly harsh desert with little natural water sources, rivers, or vegetation. So while the Cochimi claimed a relatively massive chunk of territory, there wasn't a whole lot within their domain by way of farming, resources, or anything to hold on to. So they constantly moved around in a nomadic, hunter-gatherer lifestyle with little regard for trading. They were less like the Jawa looking to trade with you and your kind and more like the Tuscan raider eager to fill you with holes and take all of your valuables type of nomadic desert tribe. However, there are also records of a marine branch of the Cochimis who settled on the island of Cedros, just off the west coast of the peninsula, and developed an extensive maritime economy and navy that prowled the Pacific and suggests the existence and participation in a wider indigenous market along the western Pacific Mexican coastline, much like the Chocos of Tabasco, the Potons of Florida and Georgia, and the Mayans of the Yucatan all using their knowledge of naval navigation to the economic benefit of their cultures. Other tribes would develop different lifestyles, such as the Kiliwa, Paipai, and Kumeai, who settled along the western edges of the Colorado River Delta floodplains, mainly between the Pacific coast and the Laguna Salada, near what is modern-day Tijuana, San Diego, Tecate, and the mountains known as La Rumorosa, where the archaeological El Vallecito cave painting site can be found. These coastal tribes practiced hunter-gathering, but finding themselves surrounded by more aggressive tribes to the north and south, 
opted to keep smaller hunting grounds and instead tried their hand at more settled practice of farming and fishing, eventually becoming quite accomplished anglers who would learn to live off the ocean, allowing them to considerably expand their populations and advance their culture. Another example of diversification by environment would be the Guachimis, who ended up being pushed by their more aggressive cousins, the Cochimis, further towards the edges of the peninsula and along the Bay of California's mountainous western coast. These vast cave systems would be transformed into the Guachimis' home, and since they did not have to move around as much as the Cochimis to gather their food since the bay provided most of it, they had more time to leave behind their artistic marbles, such as the Sierra de Guadalupe cave paintings mentioned earlier, located near the modern-day city of Mulegué in Baja California Sur. All these tribes are interesting dives into culture in their own rights, so keep an eye out for the future Baja California series while I will happily dive into the meanings of their names, some of their customs, the sites they left behind, and other fascinating facts about them, hopefully even including some of their music, much like I did for the Chocos and Zeltals in the Tabasco series. Unfortunately, none of that directly concerns the area we will be discussing today, that being the Colorado River Basin itself and the lands that transformed from one country into another. It is here where two tribes in particular, the Quechan and the Cucapá, begin dropping their hunter-gatherer completely to begin replacing it with fishing along the Gila River from the Quechan and along the banks of the Colorado River and the Bay of California for the Cucapá. The two tribes would also turn to their fertile seasonal plains and fully embraced the farming of the highly fertile floodplain found near the mouth of the Colorado River, much like the Usumacinta and Grijalva rivers we have come to learn about in the Tabasco series, this river would be vital to the development of the many diverse groups of native tribes the Spanish explorers encountered when they arrived. The harsh desert, however, would never allow for the same numbers of populations as those seen in the Yucatan or other parts of Mexico, and in fact here in the northwest we see perhaps the smallest number of native populations. This is one of several really good reasons as to why these northern territories were never extensively explored or fully developed by the Spanish until the early 18th and 19th centuries due to the deadly mix of harsh, unforgiving terrain, boiling heat, scarce resources, and semi-hostile natives likely deterring practically everyone from making any kind of lengthy survey or expedition which meant that the Patayan would manage to enjoy a lack of Spanish domination for several decades longer than their southern cousins. But let's break these two tribes down a bit more, starting with the Quechan, who at first might not seem very recognizable, but perhaps you will be more familiar with the name they were mistakenly given by the Europeans who first encountered them. So who are the Quechan? Well, since the original arrival of the Patayan to the valley, the Quechan people have further diversified into two groups, the River Quechan, who lived along the Colorado and Gila rivers, and the Mountain Quechan, who lived in the southern half of Arizona and up into the plateaus of the Grand Canyon. They are not to be confused with the Quechamaya, who reside in Guatemala, but rather these Quechan are self-denominated as the Quatzan, or those who descended a title which pairs nicely with the Patayan designation as those who came before. And again, we see the suffix an making an appearance. It would also appear the Quatzan once held the distinct honor of retaining the name of the entire language group, as for many years they were mistakenly called the Yuma by the foreign powers that encountered them. 
This may be due in part to the fact that they were the first tribe to be documented by the people who came to <clears throat> discover them. And the Kachan language now belongs to the larger human family of languages passed down from the Patayan to their seven remaining tribes that spawned from them, with the name of the language ironically coming from this misattribution of the people. Despite its constant usage, there is no clear consensus on the origin of the name Yuma, with one source suggesting it came from a misinterpretation of the phrase Yamayo, meaning son of the chief, as a member of the diplomatic party that met the Spanish might have been the son of a chief, leading to the confusion. Perhaps the way it has been suggested other native words have been created, such as Yucatan and Kangaroo. But another interesting explanation is afforded by the Encyclopedia Britannica, although explanation is kind of a stretch. It suggests it may have been an alteration on the Spanish word for smoke, which is humo. And yeah, it does kind of sound like yuma if you squint your ears. The reason I love and hate this explanation so much is that the Encyclopedia Britannica goes on to say that humo may have been the interpretation for yuma because of the, quote, the local Kechan practice of creating smoke clouds to induce rain, end quote. That's it. No further explanation is given whatsoever on this proverbial bombshell. Excuse me, Encyclopedia Britannica there, bud. Um, what gives, mate? It's one thing to suggest that Native Americans were intentionally seeding clouds with bonfires in the middle of the 19th century to create rain, but to then give no further explanation is simply criminal. I do apologize for the mini tirade, but far too many times I am left with more questions than answers during these quests for knowledge, and there is precious little time to get into the possibility of A, native peoples in the Sonoran Desert cloud seeding with just smoke from wooden or grass fires, B, its possibility of working, or even C, if it had to do at all with the name of the Yuma. You see why digressions are so easy in this line of work. While all these questions concerning the Yuma name will have to wait for their dedicated episode, allowing me to do more research on this fascinating cloud seeding rabbit hole, however the confusion occurred, Yuma is what modern early researchers refer to them as, so Yuma it would be for several decades, until the Kechan name was officially recognized by the modern federal governments of the United States and Mexico in the 20th century. The Quetzan would become very well acquainted with their sacred river, much like fellow descendants of the Patayan, the Cucapas, who we will talk about next. Both tribes would enjoy several decades of insulation from foreigners thanks to the harsh buffer zone the desert provided. But once the Spanish and American attention was turned to this part of the continent, the many descendants of the Patayan would face a much rockier and uncertain 18th century. But things did not start out all bad. In fact, the Spanish would initially be requested by the Kachan themselves to have a mission built amongst their people. But this didn't work out for very long. And soon after receiving said mission, the local attitudes shifted and the local populace began harassing and even killing the religious men stationed at said requested mission. Not the best way to start off a diplomatic relationship, if you ask me. But it's unclear how polite the Spanish missionaries were with the native religious attitudes and they may very well have been to blame for the negative reception they received by callously trampling on the local beliefs in an effort to convert. This predictably brought the wrath of the Spanish Viceroy upon their heads and put the rest of the civilized world on notice that this region held a people who might have a propensity for violence. After the Spanish-American War ended, 
the Quechan engaged in their own struggle with the Americans in a disagreement known as the Yuma War, sparked after an American-owned ferry company started losing business to a rival ferry route, one owned and operated by native Quechan. The Quechan were highly skilled navigators along the Colorado River, and after years of being hired as guides by the American ferry captains, they decided to take a crack at starting their own native-owned company, taking people and cargo up and down the river. Well, this little tiff between disgruntled ex-employees and employers erupted into full-on violence over the ferrying rights to the whole Colorado River, with casualties and loss of property experienced on both sides. This fascinating set of conflicts will be further explored in the future Baja California episodes, but struggling right alongside the Cachan against the Spanish, Mexican, and American encroachment were the Cucapá, who we will focus on today, since they directly inhabited the area we are talking about. The Cucapás, also known as the Cocopá, have several sources that speak on them, and most suggest a wide range of names they supposedly call themselves, including the Cuapa, the Cuicapay, the Cocuapa, and the Shawit Kunchawe. Most of these names are translated to either the people of the river or the cloud people, and those who live on the cloudy river, all obvious references to the mighty Colorado, and perhaps even the fog that likes to settle along its banks on cold mornings. Another translation could even be the people of the morning fog, but that's definitely taking some poetic license. These children of the cloudy river have another interesting name mentioned in the sources, known as the Chaipe Nuagua Nuayi Juanyal, the people who come and go, or those who come and go, referring to their practice of moving up and down the river, a definite play on the Patayan forebears as those who came before. Meanwhile, the neighboring tribes apparently refer to them as Los Riellos, quite literally the riverers, and another clear reference to their connection to the mighty Colorado. The spelling of their name is another matter altogether, with C-O-C-O-P-A-H and C-O-C-O-P-A both used officially in English, while C-U-C-A-P-A is mainly used in Mexico, and this is further complicated by a split that occurred during the 20th century that we will get to further on. Their language, Cucapá, like their original name and spelling, is a very complex language but we have already mentioned it is classified as one of the seven surviving branches of the Yumano-Cochimí language group that all these tribes inherited from the Patayán. But a quick word you can pick up is Auka, pronounced like au and ka, Auka, which is a friendly greeting in the Cocopá language. Unfortunately, Cocopá is one of the most endangered languages in Mexico, with less than 200 native speakers left with many of the young Cocopas opting to learn Spanish or English since those were increasingly the languages that presented the most opportunities to provide for one's family, partly due to the encroachment of modern nations and their interests clashing with the ancient livelihoods of the Cucapas living in northern Baja. Here is a quick snippet of the Cucapa language spoken by native tribe member Alfonso Tambo Cesaña, recorded on January 16, 2020, during a year-long celebration of indigenous languages held within the lower congressional house known as the Chamber of Deputies, essentially the House of Representatives in Mexico. Here, Alfonso Tambo Cesaña introduced his people, where they live, and describes a bit about how the arrival of the border has since split their people, who once covered the entire northern frontier state. 
This federal program also affords the native tribe a chance to request the government for some kind of action or attention be paid to their modern problems of survival. In the Cucapas case, the village leader Alfonso Tambo Cesaña ceaselessly beseeches the honorable chamber to aid the Cucapa people in acquiring water for their desiccated fields that now lie dry nearly year-round since the modern taming of the Colorado. Also, Alfonso asks for the assistance for the tribe so they may continue their traditions and not be fully assimilated into the Mexican culture, rendering their ancient civilization fully eliminated and a thing of the past. Let's listen to this complex, unique, yet beautiful and special language spoken by a native speaker. <laughs> We here at the Histories of Mexico wish the best to Alfonso Tambo Ceseña and his people in facing the staggering hardships of a disappearing culture to the unblinking march of modernity. But... This all leads us to ask exactly who the Kukapa people are. Well, a pretty thorough, if slightly outdated, summary of them is provided in the Handbook of American Indians North of Mexico, published by the Bureau of American Ethnology and compiled by Frederick Webb Hodge. This is what the handbook has to say on the Kukapa. Quote, a division of the human family which in 1604-05 lived in nine rancherias in the Rio Colorado, five leagues above its mouth. At a later period, they also extended into the mountains of Lower California, hence were confined almost exclusively to Mexico. According to Heintzelman, in 1856, the tribe was formally strong in numbers and could muster 300 warriors. Their total numbers were estimated by Fray Francisco Garces in 1775-76 at 3,000, but there are now only 800 in northern Lower California in the valley of the Rio Colorado. The Cocopa were reputed to be less hostile than the Yuma or the Mojave, who frequently raided their villages. Nevertheless, they were sufficiently warlike to retaliate when necessary. Garces said of them in 1776 that they had always been enemies of the Papago, Hayiquamay, Quiguimna, and Cajuenche, but friendly towards the Cuñeil. Although spoken of as being physically inferior to the cognate tribes, the males are fully up to and in some cases rather above normal stature and are well proportioned while the females appear also to be of at least ordinary size and are also well developed. Heitzelman says, quote, They so much resemble the Kuchan, Yuman, in arm, dress, manner, and customs, it is difficult to distinguish one from the other, end quote. They depend for subsistence chiefly on corn, melons, pumpkins, and beans, which they cultivated, adding native grass seeds, roots, mesquite beans, etc. 
The Kokopa houses of recent time range in character from the brush arbor of summer use to the wattled hut plastered outside and inside with mud. For winter occupancy, polygamy was formally practiced to some extent. They universally cremated their dead. The Cuculato are mentioned as Cocopa Division and Yagas as the name applied by the Spaniards to the former group of Cocopa Rancherias. End quote. Well now, that's several interesting facts about the Cucapa, but what I would like to quickly highlight are the names of the allied and enemy tribes on top of the names mentioned in the quote by John G. Douglas and William M. Graves regarding the tribes that resided in the Pimeria Alta. Given the inaccurate inclusion of the incorrect names for the Papagos and Yuma, it's hard to take these names as honest representations of the tribes in the region and what they actually called themselves. Since the Papagos actually go by the Tohoono O'odam, while the Yuma are the Kechan. Unfortunately, this episode is not the one where we get to disentangle the web of names that gets created between the 16th and 19th century as foreign researchers begin meeting and documenting these various tribes as well as labeling them based on whatever collection of hilarious circumstances led to their particular name. But throughout the future episodes in the series, expect to see many of these names brought back up and put under the lens to uncover, like some sort of name archaeologist, the closest thing to the truth we can when it comes to these ancient and noble people groups and what they called themselves. Historically, these river folk have inhabited the Mexicali Valley in the extreme northeast of the state of Baja, including portions of the Colorado River Delta. Because of their proximity to the Cucupá and El Mayor mountain ranges, these are considered sacred along with the river that feeds their delta and helps them survive the deadly temperatures. The weather also affected the clothing they wore, with men in ancient times typically wearing only a loincloth made of willow bark, while women wore what is known as a falda sausa, or falda de corteza, known as a skirt of cording a knee-length skirt traditionally made of the same willow bark and grass, but it now is commonly made out of more modern fabrics and textiles and fashions that have been brought in since the Spanish colonization. While shirts were not necessary for the men due to the extreme heat, women would wear pectorals made of seashells and clay beads, and the tribe was known to wear rabbit skin robes and ponchos at night when the weather becomes considerably cooler. Unlike the Plains Indians, the Cocopa did not practice featherhead dressing. Instead, the men would twist their long hair into hair rolls, which looked a little like dreadlocks. And these locks would sometimes be wound up around their heads or have eagle or heron feathers affixed to them or the ends. The women, by contrast, would wear their hair long and straight and were also well known for their beadwork, particularly their collars. And while this beadwork is practiced by most of the American Southwest tribes, the Cocopa are most similar in style to their northern cousins, the Mojave. The tribe's people are also known to paint their faces and bodies for special occasions, and even sported facial tattoos, according to one source I found. They are recorded as utilizing different colors and patterns depending on the occasion, with different colors displaying when going to war, celebrating a special occasion, or observing a religious ceremony and the Cocopa people have also been known to paint horizontal white or yellow stripes on their hair for normal day-to-day -day wear. On their feet, the ancient Cocopas often wore nothing, except perhaps a simple sandal made of the agave plant. Yet overall, they were very in tune with their environment and managed to survive with what little they could find among the dunes of Baja. 
Nowadays, modern cocopas wear normal clothing and typically reserve their traditional regalia, only brought out for special occasions and gatherings. To survive the heat, the cocopa would build earth houses made of square wooden frames packed with clay and thatched with grass and willow bark roofs that were held together with the sticky resin from the valley's icon, the cachanilla plant. These thick earthen walls helped keep the houses cool in the heat but retained warmth during the cold nights, making this the ideal shelter to have in the desert. Today, of course, the modern cocopas no longer live in earthen houses and instead reside within normal houses and apartments, just like regular folks. The remaining members of the tribe live mostly in the towns of Cucapá Mestizo, the Cucapá El Mayor within the Mexicali municipality of Baja, as well as in the Sonoran cities of San Luis, Rio Colorado, and Pozas de Arvizú, both found right along Sonora's western border with Baja, California. The Cocopá of the American side, meanwhile, can be found in the city of Summerton, Arizona, where the traditions and culture of this great tribe are still held strong and the Cocopá traditions continue to ring across the dunes as they have for hundreds, perhaps thousands, of years. The modern Cocopá have long since been exposed to Catholicism and, accordingly, have come to adopt a few of the Christian celebrations, such as the October 4th Festival of San Francisco, dedicated to various fertility rites of the earth herself, a rather important feature of the world to the ancient desert-dwelling tribesfolk. The modern Cucapas also hold an annual celebration known as the Cucapa Nation Meeting, which since 2003 has brought together the inhabitants of El Mayor, Baja California, and Summerton, Arizona to present dances, sing traditional songs, hold craft sales and exchanges, and offer traditional foods, with more tribes added each year. The Cucapá also hold a rich history of traditional beliefs, however, including a strong affinity towards animistic beliefs, that is, a belief in a supernatural power that organizes and animates the material universe. And it can also indicate attributing a soul to things like plants, inanimate objects, weather, and other natural phenomena, with the Cucapá holding special adoration for the sun, the sea, and of course the river, but also various geographical features, such as El Sentinela, the volcano of El Cerro Prieto, and a certain mountain of the Eagle, one of the many peaks found along the Sierra Cucapá to the west. Many desert animals are also revered, especially the coyote, who is a reoccurring figure in many Native American legends and myths as a trickster god whose stories are often meant to teach moral lessons or provide karmic advice. Interestingly, out of all the unique creatures of the desert, it would be the beetle that earned the all-important duty as sentry and judge of the afterlife, charged with passing judgment on the deceased and their souls before they were allowed their eternal rest in the afterlife. Not so sure why the connection is so interesting to me, but it seems fascinating that both the Egyptians and the Cocopa, separated by thousands of miles, would both find a certain affinity to the beetle and the afterlife. Did the Cocopa and Egyptians share some ancient cultural ancestor that existed eons ago that also worshipped the beetle and spread that belief to its descended cultures? Does the beetle's role as a recycler of desert biomes truly resonate as a death and rebirth kind of deity to any peoples that encounter it? Was there some secret beetle-like alien race that seeded all these cultures in different parts of the globe, resulting in reoccurring cultural memories of the once mighty beetle overlords of planet Earth? Please send your theories as to why this similarity might be the case, tinfoilyhat or not, to the email thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com. 
I'd love to read what crazy theories you all come up with, and maybe in some future episode, I can go through some of the wackier ones you all cook up. There also exists a pair of twin creation gods called Sipa and Komat, who lived under the sacred waters of the Colorado before deciding of their own accord to be born. Komat, being the older sibling under the water, decided it was their duty to birth their younger sibling, Sipa, by raising the deity out of the water and into life. However, the moment Sipa broke through the surface, they were born, and they thus became the eldest sibling, while Komat became the younger, having been born second. Together they created human figures out of clay, and proceeded to breathe life into all of them. They would also create the plants and animals, rivers and oceans, mountains and skies, and all was created for them to inhabit and enjoy. In honor of these beings, the native Kukapa craft human-like figures of baked mud that hold special spiritual significance to the individual it belongs to. When a member of the tribe died, certain death rituals would be performed that are held secret by the tribe, but afterwards their clay figure would have been burned along with the deceased's prized belongings and their now empty home, all sent back to the sister deities who created them in the first place. The people of the Cloudy River would also celebrate all sorts of natural features and cycles, such as puberty of both man and woman, with mothers traditionally teaching their daughters how to take care of their bodies. Other rituals would prohibit certain foods, perhaps a vestige of a time when rationing food was necessary for survival of the tribe, while other ceremonies are held when someone died, with several days of mourning observed while someone watches over their body. Many songs and dances are performed to express both the joy of the deceased's life and the pain of their loss. Then the clay house, belongings, and traditional clay figurines would all be burned according to traditional customs. Although, in modern days, this practice has been slowly abandoned due to the obvious fire hazards it presents to the modern world. Instead, in modern times, the deceased's house is often left abandoned or, if the materials permit it, the entire house is dismantled with the intention of utilizing its pieces to build a brand new one, symbolically recycling both the physical and spiritual remains of the deceased in the grand natural cycle of death and rebirth, which was so important to the Kukapa. Another highly important form of cultural expression practiced by the Kukapa is the sacred art of the Kurikuri. Kurikuri are sacred practices shared by all the descendants of the Patayan, the seven tribes of the Yumano Cochini Nation, along with many others from the southwestern United States and northwestern Mexico, along with many other tribes of the south and midwestern United States. These dances and songs are part of a rich and deeply important oral tradition that has been passed down from ancient times, one generation to the next, and thus holds incredible cultural history and knowledge within its many verses, dance movements, and corresponding explanations slash stories. A kurikuri is performed by a singer or singers, which historically were always men. Yet in more modern times, women have been allowed to learn and perform, perhaps in an effort to ensure the songs don't die due to antiquated beliefs. The singers are accompanied by dancers who move and interpret the rhythms being performed by the musician, whose voice is not only an instrument in itself, but is often also performing with or accompanied by a halma or, as it's most commonly referred to, an ule. An ule is a dried gourd, which, 
An ule is a dried gourd into which small stones and or seeds are placed and sealed in with a handle most often made of encenillo wood. You can imagine a large single maraca that is shaken to the rhythm set by the lead singer, but we're talking about a much more important object than a mere maraca. These are highly revered instruments of cultural expression, often passed down or carefully handcrafted with care and consideration for the individual it was being bestowed upon. The ule is said to absorb any bad energies that surround it, and for that reason, it is to remain covered with a handkerchief, cloth, or even shirt, which was only removed after the yerba santa, or the dried sage, could be lit and the purifying smoke allowed the ule to be revealed and the sacred curicuri to begin. These songs can be sung to express anything from the grand stories of creation to the cycles of the celestial bodies to celebrations and acknowledgments of major life events to even the mundane everyday phenomena we take for granted such as the growing of grass or the courting of birds in nature. According to traditional Kumai singer Mike, there are songs about when it rains, about the clouds, about the trees and leaves and seeds, about the animals, about fire and about tinder, and all other kinds of stories. There's so much more to the Kurikuri than what I glossed over here quickly, for even the dance moves themselves are steeped in tradition and mythology. Each one named things like Kunmi, meaning little bird, which, according to traditional Kumayai dance teacher and choreographer Eva Guadalupe Salazar Carrillo, this was the dance where the single women of the community would dance like little birds at the front of the group for the male bachelors to dance in the exact same way and mingle with one another, mimicking the birds in both motion and purpose of courting a mate. Married women and men would of course dance way in the back during these occasions, since they were already committed, and even the dance itself, Kurikuri, is said to have been invented by Coyote, as he attempted to imitate the beautiful bird songs he heard during the day, but crudely and at night. I look forward to exploring more on these amazing cultural dances and songs, and including them in the future Baja episodes, but for now I will include some links on the website, thehistoriesofmexico.com, where you can see a few supplemental pages I will include for this series and be able to access some links that show you the videos where these dances are performed. For now, let's continue with the Cucapá, who once existed in clans or lineages, typically patrilineal and exogemous, meaning mingling with other clans and tribes was encouraged and a-okay. Most of these clans would have been associated with the totem, relating to some animal, plant, or natural feature, while the clans themselves were led by a sort of war leader for the group, expected to keep his men in line, but they would also participate in shamanic activities and served as the ritual singers for the Kurikuri. These ancient lineages have since been dwindled down to mere vestiges of their previous grandeur, and lineages are now mainly preserved and passed down through more common surnames adopted by the modern Kukapa, such as Tambo and Laguna, but also Wilson and Davis, which just goes to show you the extent of American influence, as some of those modern surnames are of clear northern origin. And just like the ancient clan names, which enjoyed centuries of usage, were suddenly transformed by the arrival of foreigners to the Cucapá's sandy domain, so too with their way of life. 
As previously mentioned, the Colorado River Delta floodplains that make up the Mexicali Valley would provide the Cucapá people with ample ways of producing food by hunting, gathering, agriculture, and fishing. Accordingly, their diet is made up of many aquatic species they were able to acquire from the sea, while the desert would also afford the occasional rabbits, deer, snakes, lizards, and birds, while vegetation-wise, the occasional wild but edible fruiting bush, dule roots, wheats, grasses, cacti, and mushrooms of the desert all afforded a diverse diet. The Cucapá were also creative with their protein sources, as the occasional ant colony could certainly find its way onto the menu. And a unique dish was prepared out of this resource in the form of a rice dish that was cooked in milk and then mixed with ants and wild grasses, served like a hot desert cereal. Yum. All this would be supplemental, of course, to the farming that produced the staples of Mesoamerican diets, maize, beans, and squash. Craft-wise, they were proficient potters and master necklace beadworkers, and in present day they create all manner of crafts with the natural resources they find in their surroundings, such as dried grass-woven baskets, natural soaps, leaves for burning, for incenses or spiritual purification, and of course, the pottery and beadwork necklaces. So we now have a pretty clearer picture on who these people groups that came to settle and survive in this hot and unforgiving desert are. So now the question becomes, how does this hot, desolate valley, sparsely populated by aggressive and semi-nomadic tribes, transform into the most agriculturally productive valley in the Mexican Union? Well, that is a tale that starts, as with all things in Mexico, with the Spanish. Of the many famous Spanish expeditions to arrive and explore this Pacific American region throughout the 16th century, Hernando de Alarcón was likely the one who the Yuma people of the Mexicali Valley first encountered including the Cucapá. He ascended the Colorado River on September 5, 1540, as part of a larger expedition commissioned by a previous guest on the show featured in the Tabasco series, Viceroy Antonio Mendoza. The larger expedition was led by Francisco Coronado, and these men were supposedly seeking the fabled golden cities of Cibola along this stretch of the American Pacific coast. A search which had started in the Yucatan with legends of El Dorado, and had since gripped the imagination of several high-ranking Spanish conquistadors, leading to the endorsement of the Honorable Viceroy himself. Hernando de Alarcón would discover the Painted River spilling into the gulf once known as the Mar Bermejo, or Vermilion Sea, a name it acquired because of the massive plankton and microorganism blooms triggered each year by the warm inrush of water from the snowmelt in the spring, blooms that are oftentimes colored bright red, a fitting name for a bay the red-colored river feeds into. A fitting name for a bay the red-colored river feeds into. When Alarcón discovered it in 1540, however, he named it the Rio Buenguía, or the Good Guide River, which he would return to later that year for a second expedition, this time exploring the lands near Yuma, Arizona, with his Spanish ships utilizing this river as a guide through the empty, desolate desert they encountered. The original quest for the mythical cities of Cibola would be abandoned after no signs of major settlements whatsoever were discovered within the desert. And just like in Tabasco, the Spanish would suffer a brutally harsh and unforgiving landscape with little in the way of globally demanded resources. Most explorers did their best to get out of the area as quickly as possible, making particular note of the few water sources and friendly tribes that will help save your life if you were foolish enough to venture out this far 
such as the Lagoon of Volcanoes near the Cerro Prieto or the Laguna Salada, as well as the Cucapá and other semi-friendly tribes like the Kumayay and the Quechan. However, the sheer hostility of the climate was enough to deter the Spanish from establishing very many, if any, official colonies or settlements within the California and Pimeria territories for most of the time they held them. Sebastián Vizcaino's 1602 trip, representing one of the last significant European expeditions to occur for over 170 years. The next noteworthy expedition would also result in the first detailed description of the land where Mexicali currently sits, written in 1775 by famed explorer Juan Bautista de Anza, an enormous figure in the history of the Spanish colony of Las Californias and the Pimeria Alta that would later break up into the various states of Mexico and the U.S. that make up this once Spanish frontier region. De Anza would also be important in the territory of New Mexico that would become a U.S. state of the same name, where he would serve as governor, while in Sonora he would die and be buried in the city of Arispe in 1788. However, he was later dug up in order to be ceremoniously reinterred into a fancier marble mausoleum in 1963, apparently more befitting one of the founders of the American Southwest and Mexican Northwest. Danza passed through this Mexicali region, specifically during his famous expeditions to the California territories, creating in the process the so-called Camino del Diablo, or the Devil's Road, through the harsh Sonoran Desert. Arriving in the lands of the native Cucapá, he noted that their numbers, during normal times already smaller than those in the southern parts of the country, had taken a significant drop since the arrival of the Spanish and their billions of tiny infectious friends. By this point in 1775, Spanish colonization had been slowly creeping northwards after the many northern tribes resisting Spanish encroachment finally ran out of steam, meaning the exploration parties sent through the deadly Devil's Road were much safer and could rely on nearby friendly ports and well-stocked settlements or forts where they could resupply and rest at, allowing for better supplied and longer expeditions. The path where Danza first crossed from modern-day Mexico into the United States was right at the dividing line between Mexicali and Calexico, and there is a designated trail that commemorates Danza's incredible 1,950-kilometer or 1,210-mile-long trek from modern-day Arizona through the Colorado Desert and towards California, eventually arriving at the site of the future Pueblo de Los Angeles, a trip he made in 75 days. Danza would return to California a second time, this time making it all the way to San Francisco Bay, where the Danza Trail ends. So, like I said, he is a bit important in the modern state. His journeys established the vital Sonoran Road, a northern land route through which colonists began pouring into trying to reach California and the western Pacific coast. This predictably angered the tribes in the region, leading to revolts by many of them, most notably the Quechan in 1781, which resulted in the closing off of the Sonoran Road to all outsiders, meaning all transportation had to go via the sea, while this northeastern corner of the Baja Peninsula went back to being perceived as a hostile, untamable, flood-prone, and deserted delta, with nothing significant to offer. After independently-minded revolutionaries threw the Spanish out of Mexico City in the early 19th century, the Quechan, having had beef exclusively with the Spanish, now welcomed the Mexican Union and reopened the Sonoran Road, a move that said Mexican Union might have capitalized on and laid a stronger claim to had the revolving door of governments that followed independence from Spain 
not siphoned off so much energy and attention from the newly acquired yet far-off holdings, which included the extremely barren and terribly hot territory of Baja California. Of course, this inattentiveness would ultimately be one of the many factors that pushed the relatively new neighboring democracies into the famous Mexican-American War, which ended in 1848 and saw the U.S. of A. annex all of Alto California, half of the Pimeria Alta, and the territories of New Mexico and Texas. This is all way outside of our scope at the moment, but the splitting of the Californias would be the beginning of the end for the unity enjoyed by the Cucapá people in the Mexicali Valley, and it would signal a new phase in the history of Baja, having skipped right past the typical and extensive colonial period that most other Mexican states endured, and jumping almost directly into the new entrepreneurially-minded developmental phase of the early industrial. This phase would be helped along half a century later in the early 1900s, when we will see a pair of pivotal engineering technologies introduced to the desert that would change the entire region going forward, the railroads and canals. Not only would the exploitative hiring practices of the profit-driven developers who set about funding massive railroad, canal, and irrigation projects set up a future explosion of violence among the racially segregated working classes, but the American Southwest would come to experience torrential rainfall in the years of 1905 and 06, causing the Colorado River to experience unprecedented swells and overflows, spilling into many of these canals that had been built to irrigate the plains along a basin that once held a massive prehistoric lake known as Lake Cahuila. Over the millennia, this ancient lake had dried up once the Colorado naturally diverted during one of its many hydrological cycles of carving through the Colorado Plateau on its journey from the Rockies to the sea, ever propelled by gravity. This left the once massive Cahuila Lake to dry up, revealing the very basin now being attempted to be irrigated. See, what nobody had anticipated was that due to the valley's location deep below sea level, once the waters rushed in, they couldn't exactly rush back out, and instead collected at the lowest point of the basin, the Salton Sink, which hundreds of thousands of gallons later inevitably creates something like the Mar de Salton, or the Salton Sea. Now, I won't get into the weeds of the issue, but nearly a hundred years after its unintended creation, the Salton Sea, after several years of existing as a sort of fun and novel tourist destination, has since begun to create a series of environmental crises for the people that live in its vicinity, both American and Mexican alike. I mention it here to again highlight just another way these borders and quote-unquote separate communities have always been and will continue to be inexorably linked to one another. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. We were talking about the Cucapas and the golden opportunity Mexico missed out on when it lost the Alto California territory to the United States after only 20 years of owning it. You see, a year after this forceful purchase of the territory in 1849, a little gold nugget was found in the rivers of California, resulting in the United States experiencing a tiny little, you know, small gold rush. Uh, so small that the city of San Francisco decided to name a football team after the entire freaking year. So, you know, tiny little gold rush. This drew a massive influx of migrants westward across the country to the Rockies and down the Colorado River, hoping to reach the land where the cities and its rivers flowed with gold. Funny, that's sort of what the Spanish had originally come to the area seeking, a la Alarcón and the hunt for the golden cities of Cibola. Hmm, strange how history works. Anyway, Alarcón hadn't named it the River of Good Guidance for nothing. 
And pretty soon, the importance of this developing river route in bypassing the harsh deserts that separated the American Midwest with the Pacific Coast would be recognized by the U.S. government and military. Thus, in 1850, the U.S. Army created Camp Independence, officially to protect this important entry route that went directly through the tribe's territories from rude and inconsiderate travelers. But unofficially, the U.S. military had clear designs for controlling this strategic pass and likely enforcing the taxing of the increasingly profitable ferry business that was rapidly expanding up and down the Colorado, regardless of what tribes had been living there for who cared how long. One tribe in particular did concern the army's attention greatly, those being the Kachan, or Yuma, as they were still called back then, which now clears up why the upcoming Yuma Wars might have been named and might also explain the new name of the fort in 1851, from which all military operations in the area were launched, Fort Yuma, no doubt named in recognition of the Kachan tenacity which American soldiers would have experienced firsthand during the ensuing conflicts, given that the Kachan were their biggest quote-unquote problem in the area. The Kukapas, like their Kachan cousins, would prove incredibly skilled at navigating the long red river they called home, making them highly prized pilots for the incoming steamboat companies. But also, like their cousins, the Kukapa would eventually clash with the Americans and their ceaseless land encroachment, kicking off what would be known as the Yuma Wars. Although calling them that is a bit overinflated, as they were mostly a series of military engagements between small bands of native warriors clashing with detachments of American soldiers. One of the more notable of these would be the Garra Revolt in San Diego, an event we will see play out a bit more in the following episodes of this series regarding the cities of Tijuana and San Diego, so stay tuned. Unfortunately, the Garra Revolt would be crushed as most of the engagements with the natives would go the way of the U.S. Army and their superior weaponry. And remember, these tribes weren't very big to begin with, so the army was pretty much outmatching them at every front. After the fighting with the Americans ended, inter-tribal tempers finally snapped, and all their frustration and anger, already at an all-time high due to the encroachment of the Americans, would turn on one another with the Kukapa raiding the Kachan, and the Kachan, in response, dragging their reluctant allies, the Mojave, into a retaliatory raid that killed three people. Things may have continued to escalate had the U.S. not given the Kachan and Mojave a serious look before threatening to join the conflict but on the side of the Kukapas, if everyone didn't bring the violence all the way back down to zero. All this violence might scare away the true aim of the military in the region. All that business, I, I mean all those families migrating to California, and that disruption was just not good for anyone, right? This would all culminate in 1853, when the five brave men, a collection of four Mojave leaders and a single Kukapa chief, all signed a treaty with the U.S. military to cease all hostilities in the region, and officially all five agreed to recognize and protect American colonization efforts into their ancestral homes that were now just newly acquired border territories of the Americans. The Cucapaz would also play a hand in the Mexican Revolution by rebelling under one of its many libertarian prongs, the proto-communist movement known as Magonismo, or Maganism. We will get into the fascinating roots of Magonismo and its ideas proliferated by the Flores Magonismo brothers, who, much like the Roman Gracchi, would stir the general populace to first question, then begin collectively rattling their oppressive chains, until eventually most of the country was forcefully straining against the political boot that Porfirio Diaz had firmly placed on their collective throats. 
In this part of Mexico, the Cucapaz of the Mexicali Valley were led by Camilo Jimenez, who showed his support for the cause, first by smuggling U.S. weapons into Mexico and into insurgent hands, likely through entry points such as Tijuana, Tecate, Mexicali, and Los Algodones. Then, on January 29, 1911, the combined Cocopa and Magonista forces liberated the city of Mexicali from federal clutches, and it would serve as a logistical hub for the revolutionary forces in the region for several years. Jimenez would then behave like a mini Pancho Villa, organizing and carrying out further campaigns with the Pai Pai and the Quiliwa forces all the way from El Rosario to Enseñada, raiding small towns and looting Chinese-Mexican businesses along the way. Remember these businesses as they will come up again. Camilo Jimenez and his mostly indigenous army would eventually be defeated by the National Mexican Army, and upon returning, the Cucapaz would be forced off their land by the Colorado River Land Company, kicking off a wildfire of civil disobedience in the region that would have long-term repercussions for the wider territory. All this kicked off a series of events that greatly came to influence the ancient way of life for the humble Cucapaz. First, the Colorado River Land Company would threaten the very existence of the valley. Then, in 1917, American President Woodrow Wilson signed Executive Order No. 2711, which established the tribal reservations, and the native Cucapa living in Fort Yuma fell under said order. This executive order would provide relative benefits, federal protections, and limited political representation for the many tribes it came to affect. But here along the border, it meant its political divide extended to more than just the land, and now would come to include its people as well. To enjoy the offered benefits of living under the U.S. borders, in 1930, the Cocopa in the U.S. and the Cucapas in Baja California, just miles apart and essentially the same people since their culture descended from the old Patayan, had been forced to end thousands of years of tribal unity and are today recognized as two distinct tribal groups speaking the same language, eating the same foods, living in very similar ways, and sharing the same history and songs. But now they live on opposite sides of an immaterial border. They are separate. Life sure is strange. By 1935, the ancestral Cucapa lands had been converted into primarily cotton fields, while the Edgar Hoover Dam's completion finally brought the mighty Colorado to heel leading to the utter abandonment of traditional agriculture, which had relied on the river's seasonal flooding. In 1937, an agrarian reform instituted by the federal government integrated them into a sedentary life within the Pueblo system and greatly diminished their ancestral territory, until finally, in 1993, the declaration of the Upper Gulf of California and Colorado Delta Biosfera Reserve has meant that its utilization for fishing resources has been severely limited for conservation efforts, closing off yet another avenue of traditional living for the desert tribes. To give an idea of the scale of change the tribes have been facing, an article was written by CNN where a traveler to the valley in 1922, one Aldo Leopoldo, was quoted as describing the Colorado River Delta and its massive marshland as such. Quote, the river was everywhere and nowhere, for it could not decide which of a hundred green lagoons offered the most pleasant and least speedy path to the gulf. He also mentions, quote, awesome jungles, lovely groves, and still waters of deep emerald hue, end quote, further describing colorful birds of every shape and size, deer, bobcats, coyotes, 
and all the makings of a rich, vibrant ecosystem. Unfortunately, that is no longer the case, as conveyed in the same article by Onesimo González, village chief of El Mayor, a Cucapá village in Baja, California. Born in 1934, Onesimo was young enough to remember the marshland during its splendor, but now he laments, much like the Lorax, that, quote, Our river is gone. No more fishing. Trees are dead. No one plants. The wells are dry. End quote. The CNN article doesn't give much by the way of hope, and the rapid decline of the Cucapá's ancestral lands is due in tremendous part to the existence of heavily polluted rivers due to agricultural runoff and chemical dumping into the nearby streams and rivers, such as the New and Hardy rivers, which are now consistently reported to be smelling like raw sewage and other nasty, unmentionable smells. This reveals a frightening reality for an increasing number of communities, not only in the United States, but around the globe, as harmful and environmentally destructive practices show no sign of slowing down, and rather appear to be speeding up while lawmakers and politicians around the world continue to bicker yet do nothing or the bare minimum to address the looming environmental disasters in any meaningful way. But that's enough of my cynical doom ramblings. We were talking about the once unified nation of the Cucapá. Ultimately, the modern tribe was split, and in 1964, the Cocopá tribe, that's the U.S. branch, ratified its first constitution and formed a five-person tribal council in the Cocopá Indian Reservation. Later, in 1985, the tribe gained an additional 4,200 acres through a bill signed by U.S. star actor and president Ronald Reagan, who loves making appearances in historical stories one way or another. This Cocopá Reservation is located within Yuma County in Summerton, Arizona, a mere 20 kilometers or 13 miles south of the modern city of Yuma, Arizona, and 24 kilometers or 15 miles north of San Luis, Sonora, situated along the Colorado River. If you want to talk about blended borders, then look no further than this reservation, which boldly borders the states of Arizona, California, and Baja California defiantly maintaining physical links to its once unified people. Meanwhile, in Mexico, most Cucupas live in tiny villages in northern Baja California and northwestern Sonora, with no federally recognized political organization of their own. Originally, the ancient Cucapá government was, as mentioned, a loose conglomeration of village elders and medicine people rather than a single ruling warrior chief. Today, this is echoed by the election of a tribal council with any citizen of the tribe able to be nominated. Despite what I just said, in the 1990s, the traditional chief position was created, but this was only to facilitate the interstate organization of the wider disconnected Cucapá tribe, whose occupation is concentrated in three separate regions, Baja California, Sonora, and Arizona. Thus, each region was designated a chief who represents, guides, and transmits the uses and customs of the whole, and Sonora has taken a tentative first step towards official federal representation when in 1997 they elected an indigenous counselor to act as a representative of all the indigenous people settled in the municipality of San Luis Rio Colorado, the majority of them native Cucapas. But of course, the Cucapá and Cocopá are valiantly giving back to the earth that has sustained their people for countless generations. 
As recently as Earth Day 2023, the Cocopa Environmental Protection Office and its various partners celebrated the official dedication of the final keepers of the river trail and restoration area, a project two years in the making that consisted of a seven-acre restoration area, one-mile walking trail, labyrinth, and meditation spaces, all created in an effort to maintain the ecosystem that has produced such a rich and vibrant culture for such a long time. Now, before wrapping up, I suppose I would like to add that in all of my research, the number one thing repeated by nearly every native speaker being interviewed was how they did not wish to see their beautiful culture die out. There are serious efforts made by the disparate community leaders of the remaining Kukapa and other human-speaking peoples, such as the Kumayai, the Pai Pai, and the Kiliwa, many of which provided vital information via interviews that have proven indispensable and illuminating for my research. So, in an effort to do my small bit and hopefully reach more people, these communities are constantly asking that more tourists, but especially fellow Mexicans, visit them and buy even a small gift to take home, as it helps immensely for the survival of these small villages desperately clinging to their cultural identity. And if I find any links to any local shops, I will definitely include them in the supplemental pages. They would like everyone to know that they are still here, maintaining their traditions and bravely fighting off the march of progress, attempting to stamp them out. Of course, this plea can be made by countless other struggling native communities throughout Mexico and the United States, so I suppose the main message is to support whatever native tribe you can, as they are all equally facing a looming extermination at the hands of modernization and quote-unquote progress. The Baja tribes in particular face a stark reality of their children, the very future generations meant to keep their traditions alive, opting, either out of economic necessity or personal choice, to leave their ancestral communities behind and try to make it out in the larger, interconnected global world. And with the promise of the American dream just over the horizon, the slow attrition of culture is creeping along day by day. So if you are in the area, then by all means, please visit places like El Mayoral, or Posas de Aruvise, where the Sipa and Comat Cultural Learning Center will teach you all about Cucapá history and customs. Or there is also San José de la Zorra, named after the union of a ranch called La Zorra, was kindly forced to relocate to the newly established village of San José during one of the many federal relocation programs, as well as countless other communities existing within Baja and Sonora, such as Cucapá Mestizo, Colonia La Puerta, Ejido Hipólito, Rentería, Sansón Flores, Campo del Prado, Rancho San Pedro, Campo Camerina, and La Alberca. And of course, there are also the American communities found in Summerton, Arizona, where the new final keepers of the river trail and restoration area stands proudly for you to visit. But this about brings us up to relative speed on not only the region and some of its geographical, hydrographical, and biological features, but also the prehistoric peoples who once populated the region and tribes that settled the Mexicali Valley, particularly how the ancient Puebloan, Mogollon, Hohokam, and Patayan people diversified and split into their myriad of modern descendants, such as the Pima, also known as the Oodam, the Hopi, the Zuni, the Mojave, and most important of all to this episode, the Yumano Cochimí language-speaking family of tribes that settled the Baja Peninsula, including the Cucapá, the Quechan, also known as the Yuma, 
the Kiliwa, the Paipai, the Kumeai, the Kochimi, and the Guachimis. All this, however, tells us very little about the city that lends its name to the valley, such as how Mexicali even came into existence, or how it rose as the preeminent city of the young state of Baja California, ultimately taking the title of capital from its fellow Baja city, Enseñada. However, before we talk about the city, in the next episode, we must start with the formation of the two sides of the border, as they follow very similar paths revolving around the dream of irrigating the once dry and dusty valleys north of the Bay of California in order to forge an agricultural empire. But most importantly, we must talk about how these efforts nearly caused a major shift in the hydrological features of the region, meaning they almost changed the entire course of history by quite nearly changing the course of an entire river. So stay tuned for next time. Please email any questions, comments, or concerns to thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com be sure to check out Dr. Andrew Selly's book, Vanishing Frontiers, as well as the supplemental pages at thehistoriesofmexico.com. Be sure to go check out Alex over at Pike Productions on YouTube and subscribe to his channel if you like what you see. And last, but certainly not least, I must give a huge thank you to the following people who provided interviews that I have been pouring over to gather information for this podcast. And I hope to visit the villages in the videos I saw one day to give my thanks personally. So, humongous thanks to the communities of San Jose de la Zorra and El Mayor, the native teachers Eva Guadalupe Salazar Carrillo, Maria de los Angeles Carrillo Silva, Beatriz Carrillo, Elizabeth Romo, Lidia Dominguez, and Armandina Gonzalez Castro. Finally, the native dancer Lucia Laguna and musicians David de los Reyes, Mike, Javier Ceseña, and Indio Romo. Thank you so much for all of your knowledge, information, and for continuing to fight the good fight at maintaining this incredible Kukapa legacy. As always, thank you for listening. Gracias y que viva bien. Adios and goodbye for now.
Hey, 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 hey.